From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Global warming is scarcely mentioned during presidential campaign events, but the U.S. and China have taken a momentous step by ratifying the U.N. Paris Climate Agreement. It's a very big deal because to take effect, Paris needs to be ratified by 55 countries representing 55% of global emissions. The U.S. and China bring us up to 26 countries, but importantly, they bring us up nearly to 40% of global emissions. What comes next? Also, Native Americans make a stand to protect their ancestral lands from a Bakken oil pipeline. When the Corps of Engineers was doing their surveys of the land, they never consulted tribes on it. I mean, the tribes are the ones that know where these sacred or cultural significant sites are. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. U.S. President Obama and Chinese President Xi have formally ratified the Paris Climate Agreement. This landmark moment in international relations took place as heads of state were gathering at the recent G20 meeting in China. Climate diplomacy expert Alden Meyer of the Union of Concerned Scientists is here to put the ratification in context. Alden, welcome back to Living on Earth. Good to be with you again, Steve. So how big a deal is this? How significant is it that China and the United States, the countries with the two largest economies in the world, have now ratified the Paris Agreement? It's a very big deal because to take effect, Paris needs to be ratified by 55 countries representing 55% of global emissions. The U.S. and China bring us up to 26 countries having taken that action to join Paris. Most of the rest are small island and vulnerable countries. But importantly, they bring us up nearly to 40% of global emissions. There's a number of them uh, that are either taking action or signaling they will take action by the end of this year. Brazil, Argentina, Chile, uh, Canada, Australia, Ukraine. And the latest estimate is that we'll have somewhere between 55 and 60 countries representing almost 60% of global emissions to push us over that finish line and have Paris taking effect. And of course, the end of the year is important in terms of American politics. Donald Trump has vowed to abandon the Paris Agreement if he wins the White House in November. If this has been all agreed to before he takes office, to what extent could he derail this process? Well, if the agreement has entered into force, as it's likely to, it would be four years before the U.S. could formally withdraw under the terms of the agreement. That's not the big question. The big question is, would Donald Trump take any action to live up to the U.S. commitments under Paris? And the answer from his statements seems to be no, that he would not push to decarbonize the U.S. economy, to shift away from coal and other fossil fuels into renewables and all the other steps that President Obama has been taking. So I think that's what's raising real concern among other leaders and, and organizations around the world. It's not whether he would formally withdraw the U.S. from the agreement. It's whether he would lift a finger to live up to our commitments under it. Of course, right now, the president of the United States is Barack Obama. Why did President Obama and the Chinese president uh, Xi choose this moment to ratify? Well, I think they wanted to continue the leadership that their two countries have been showing over the last several years. It was really in the fall of 2014 that the first U.S.-China agreement brokered a, a real breakthrough here and, and I think laid the groundwork for 
the Paris Agreement itself, because, of course, you remember back in Copenhagen, the two countries were at loggerheads and really pointing fingers at each other, and the rhetoric was getting quite intense. So the fact that the U.S. and China have been working together on implementation of Paris and, and choosing this moment right before the G20 summit of world leaders in Hangzhou, China, I think was very significant. And of course, both of them are encouraging other leaders in other countries to join them in implementing Paris. Some folks ask how President Obama has been able to single-handedly ratify the Paris Agreement without having to go to the U.S. Senate. Well, under uh, uh, U.S. law and, and tradition all the way back to George Washington, there are a number of actions that the president uh, has taken on international agreements over the years. And it's clear that with the Senate having ratified the underlying treaty, the Rio Treaty, back from 1992 under George H.W. Bush, that the president has authority to adopt this agreement in Paris, which is basically implementing that treaty that was ratified by the Senate. And of course, he is acting under existing authority, the Clean Air Act and other laws that the Congress has passed and the Supreme Court has upheld to move forward on implementation. Domestic actions needed to meet the commitments that he made in Paris, the 26 to 28 percent emissions reduction below 2005 levels by 2025. So on both the international side and the domestic side, the administration is claiming it has the authority under previous congressional action to join the Paris Agreement. Some Republicans are saying no. What's their best argument? Well, I mean, I think on the one hand, they say the president doesn't have authority to do this. And on the other hand, they say, well, other countries aren't joining us and, and it's not going to be significant anyway. And I think one of the political impacts of the U.S.-China agreement is to undercut that argument that we're on our own here and others won't join us. So the United States in Paris said, look, we have the clean power plan that we're going to move forward with. That now seems to be in jeopardy. So where are we now then in terms of, of meeting our obligations under the Paris Agreement, do you think? Well, I mean, the Clean Power Plan, of course, there was a stay put on it by the Supreme Court in a five to four decision. That was not a ruling on the merits. The Clean Power Plan will be up before the appeals court here in D.C., the circuit court later this month. It's expected to um, survive that challenge and likely will go to the Supreme Court next year. And of course, there, it partly depends on the outcome of the election and who uh, takes the seat vacated by the death of Antonin Scalia. Most states seem to be going forward with preparing to implement their obligations under the Clean Power Plan. So that shows you, I think, where their betting is. It's a pretty good news story if you look back over the last eight years domestically on what the president's been able to achieve. Alden, before you go, give me the big picture here. How on track are the world's nations in terms of tackling climate disruption at this point? Well, I mean, there's good news and bad news. The good news is that there's unprecedented investment in clean energy and renewable energy and energy efficiency. And the costs of those technologies are coming down. And it looks like we may have reached a global peak in emissions and starting to bend the curve downward. The bad news, of course, is that there's still a fair amount of investment in conventional fossil fuels, coal plants and other technologies. And of course, the real question is, will we decarbonize the global economy quickly enough to stay out ahead of the physical impacts of climate change? And, and of course, there the jury is out. We really are in a race with the physical climate system. And of course, we're seeing mounting impacts of climate change by the week.
Alden Meyer is Director of Strategy and Policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today, Alden. Good to be with you, Steve. As U.S. oil output has increased, companies are faced with a problem, getting crude from the fracking fields to market. Trains are overloaded and vulnerable to fiery accidents, so some want to build more pipelines, and those bids can spark passionate opposition. The latest flashpoint is the Dakota Access Pipeline, a $4 billion project to carry over a half a million barrels of crude oil per day out of the back and shale. Hundreds of Native American protesters have mounted fierce demonstrations, fueled in part by outrage at the proposed 1,200-mile route that would cross the Missouri River and ancestral lands. Opponents say the route was approved by the Army Corps of Engineers in violation of federal laws meant to protect clean drinking water and preserve ancestral tribal lands. Living on Earth's Jamie Kaiser has our report. This is a new warrior. This is a warrior who stands up for our rights. Rights that Native Americans have paid for in blood. To make the Constitution out a lie. A lie to the world. We have the right to assemble. The standoff against the Dakota Access Pipeline between local authorities and protesters led by the Standing Rock Sioux Nation has been going on for weeks. The flashpoint is the construction site by the Missouri River, where the Army Corps of Engineers approved permits in July to build sections of that pipeline that will pump barrels of crude oil from the Bakken Shale in North Dakota across South Dakota, Iowa, and Illinois to East Coast markets. The Sioux filed a lawsuit against the Army Corps of Engineers, alleging that the permits violate federal law. One of the major issues that the tribe has raised over time after time is the fact that uh, when the Corps of Engineers and the, the pipeline company was doing their surveys of the land, they never consulted tribes on it. I mean, the tribes are the ones that know where these, these sacred or cultural significant sites are. That's Dallas Goldtooth of the Indigenous Environmental Network an active participant in the Dakota Access protests. He explained that the location of the line under dispute is a choke point for the project. Construction has not started across the Missouri. For those of us who have been fighting this pipeline for the past couple of years have seen the strategic value of stopping it at the river. Some opponents call the pipeline the Black Snake and say it's proposed to slither about a mile from Sioux territory, but right within traditional lands. Conflict reached a boiling point over Labor Day weekend when builders attempted to kickstart construction, allegedly desecrating tribal artifacts in the process. After heated physical confrontations, the trucks left. They're bulldozing. They're bulldozing and preparing to put it, install a pipeline to go into the Ethan River. This land belongs to the earth. We are only caretakers. We're caretakers of the earth. But the pipeline fight is a two-sided coin because it will bring jobs and access to a valuable U.S. resource. Here's Tessa Sandstrom of the North Dakota Petroleum Council, a trade association that includes pipeline builder energy transfers. There will be between 8,000 and 12,000 jobs created during the construction, a majority of which will be made up of locals from the North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota area. They are working with the labor's union here to help provide some of those jobs. And so it's really going to be a significant boon, especially during this current downtime. Another argument Tessa Sandstrom offered was that the strong safety record of moving oil via pipeline compares well with other modes of transportation like rail. 
That can lead to flaring disasters like the Lac Megantic explosion in Quebec that left 47 dead. Here in the U.S., oil rail incidents increased nearly 16-fold between 2010 and 2014. And pipelines, of course, do remain the safest way to transport uh, materials, whether it's crude oil, water, uh, gasoline, refined product. Uh, they have a very high safety record, and Dakota Access particularly is going above and beyond what the federal government requires to ensure um, that it remains safe to operate and, and get our, our resources out to market. But for activists like Goldtooth, the question of whether to transport oil by train or truck or pipeline is irrelevant. It's a setup. It's a setup question because it's, it's, its foundation is based on the belief that we have to keep on drilling, that we have to keep on extracting, that we have to be, continue to be dependent upon this extractive economy. The Army Corps and the pipeline company refused comment. In addition to the many federal regulations that the Corps of Engineers is accused of ignoring, approving the pipeline without Native American consent could very well violate international law, including the 2007 UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights. My name is Daly Sambo DeRoe, and I'm an assistant professor at University of Alaska Anchorage in the Department of Political Science, but I'm also an expert member of the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. Daly herself is a member of the Inupiaq, or Inuit Alaska Native People, and she believes that the Standing Rock Sioux Nation was not adequately consulted under international law. There are a number of different relevant international human rights instruments. Um, in my view, uh, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, as well as the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, are directly relevant. Doro says that she has not noticed improvement in respect for the rights of Indigenous peoples since the adoption of the UN Declaration in 2007. What we're seeing is uh, increased number of violations being perpetrated against indigenous peoples, not only in North America, but throughout Latin America, and especially in the area of extractive industries. Unfortunately, it's been a, a consistent march forward to exploit indigenous peoples' lands, territories, and resources. That's what the Standing Rock Sioux Nation and their allies allege is happening in this case. But Dallas Goldtooth says that they will keep fighting. We have a lot of faith, a lot of prayer that's happening in this camp, and so I have to trust in that prayer and trust in the collective energy that we all are giving. As they point out, their heritage and sacred places, once destroyed, are gone forever. For Living on Earth, I'm Jamie Kaiser. On September 9th, the Obama administration ordered pipeline construction halted in the federal region in question while the Justice Department, Interior Department, and Army Corps of Engineers conduct additional reviews. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Fossil fuel pipeline projects continue to attract controversy especially when companies persuade governments to invoke the power of eminent domain to take people's land. Companies argue that natural gas access is a public good, but when the proposed pipes would carry byproducts of fracking such as propane, butane, or ethane, some landowners are fighting back, 
saying these products are not in the public interest. Julie Grant of the Allegheny Front has the story. The quiet hills of eastern Ohio and Harrison County have become a popular spot, and not just for the cicadas you hear, but also for oil and gas development. Mick Luber grows his tomatoes, greens, even fava beans here at his organic farm and sells them at markets in Pittsburgh and Wheeling. He says recent years have brought a compressor station and multiple well sites so close they wake them up at night. For the first year that they were fracking, it was hard for me to go outside. I felt so bad hearing the roar of all this stuff. It's nice to have the cicadas that drowned them out. Now pipeline companies like Kinder Morgan are showing up. They came knocking on Luber's door. They wanted to come right down through this main field and go up over top of that hill. There's a spring right up there. That's the most fertile part of this farm. Marathon is already building a pipeline on the southern border of his farm. Luber points up to the valley where pipes are lined up waiting to be connected. The ground has been stripped bare. This is what you end up with. This was all woods. Shell is also planning a line here. So when Kinder Morgan showed up, Luber said no, no pipeline, not even a survey. I told him I didn't want it. Kinder Morgan sued. One of the main arguments in Luber's defense, the contents of Kinder Morgan's pipeline. Not natural gas for home heating, but to send ethane to Canada for Nova Chemicals to make plastics. Ethane, along with propane and butane, are known as natural gas liquids. They're byproducts of natural gas that's been fracked in the region. Increasingly, landowners are arguing that they shouldn't have to give up their property rights for companies to transport these liquids to make plastics, especially if they're being sent to foreign countries. Kinder Morgan spokesperson Alan Four says, yes, they should. Plastics are in the public interest. You tell me anybody in this country that doesn't use plastics in some way and that plastics aren't critically important to their everyday lives, from cups to medical devices to automobiles. You might think the federal government would have a say in whether transporting these natural gas liquids to make plastics is important enough to usurp individual property rights. If this were a natural gas pipeline, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, would have authority over siting its route. But what about these liquids like ethane? FERC has no authority to regulate natural gas liquids in the United States at all. Attorney Rich Raiders represents about a dozen landowners in Pennsylvania against eminent domain action from a different pipeline company, Sunoco Logistics. He says when FERC has authority, as it does for siting natural gas pipelines, landowners have a say in how it's routed. That's an all-public, eyes-open discussion, whereas for natural gas liquid line, that's between the individual landowner and the pipeline operator, and no government entity is involved at all. Well, the Federal Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration does require permits for large earth disturbances and around bodies of water for pipeline routes. But when it comes to eminent domain, that's being decided in state courts. The Kentucky Supreme Court recently let a lower court ruling stand. It found that the pipeline company in that case is not a public utility, which means it does not have the power of eminent domain to site a natural gas liquids pipeline. In Pennsylvania, pipeline companies that want eminent domain power also have to get certified as a public utility by the State Public Utility Commission, the PUC. To do that, they have to show that their project will benefit the people of the Commonwealth. And what that means is under debate. 
One of the biggest headline grabbers on this issue has been Sunoco's Mariner East project. It includes two pipelines, an older one that's been repurposed and a newer one, both carrying natural gas liquids. The new line begins in Ohio, near McLuber's farm in Harrison County, runs through Pennsylvania to the Marcus Hook Industrial Complex on the Delaware border near Philadelphia. From there, Rader says the propane is being shipped to Europe. That's not a need of the Commonwealth. And so, he argues, Sunoco should not have the power of eminent domain. The company would not record an interview for this story. In an email, Sunoco says the project will provide propane for heating fuel to markets in Pennsylvania. Sunoco says for the Mariner East 2 pipeline, it's a utility. Based on a certification granted by the PUC to their older pipeline back in the 1930s. Some are fighting that stance in court, and a state appeals court recently sided with Sunoco. Pennsylvania's Commonwealth Court ruled in July that the company is a public utility and that that power extends to all 17 counties along the pipeline's path. Sunoco's email says still they've come to agreement with the majority of landowners. Attorney Nicholas Anderson represents a landowner in Harrison County that's in Ohio. The Teeter family is fighting Sunoco's eminent domain action. The bottom line is that when they're approaching landowners in Ohio, they have this big stick called eminent domain. And so they say, look, we'll give you X number of dollars per linear foot. But if you don't accept that, we're just going to take your property. And that is where we have a problem. Anderson says along that Kinder Morgan ethane pipeline from Ohio to Canada, the one farmer Mick Luber was fighting, the company recently filed 130 eminent domain cases in at least eight Ohio counties. Kinder Morgan spokesperson Alan Forrest says they only take eminent domain action as a last resort. If you look at our route, you can see a lot of zigs and zags and turns, certainly not a straight line. Those are all based upon big issues like avoiding uh, environmentally sensitive areas or individual landowner concerns. Like McLuber, Kinder Morgan recently announced they would reroute around his farm. Still, Luber doesn't see it as a victory. Well, as long as these guys are still doing this stuff, what is the victory, you know? You can't stop the vigilance, you know? People gotta keep standing in their way. Kinder Morgan says Luber got what he wanted, but the company wants to make it clear they can't reroute for every landowner who has a problem with their pipeline. I'm Julie Grant. Julie reports for the Pennsylvania Public Radio program, The Allegheny Front. Let's head beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra. Peter's with dailyclimate.org and environmental health news, that's ehn.org, and joins us on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Hi, Peter. Hi, Steve. Let's start with three common consumer goods that may see big regulatory changes soon. First, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has banned antibacterial soaps containing triclosan, saying the chemical is no more effective than ordinary hand soap and may actually hold some risk as a potential endocrine disruptor. Uh-huh. Well, that's been a very long battle. Yeah, FDA first proposed a review of triclosan back in 1978, but their decision last week isn't the end since it's still allowed for use in some hand sanitizers, cosmetics, and even some toothpastes. Huh, toothpaste. So you won't be able to put triclosan on your hands, but you'll still be able to put it in your mouth? What's next? 
another long-running environmental battle. The UK government says it plans to ban plastic microbeads in consumer products by next year. The tiny plastic particles are turning up in the ocean and in freshwater like the Great Lakes. They're ingested by marine creatures, creating a huge hazard. But haven't a whole bunch of companies voluntarily promised to stop using microbeads? Yeah, including Johnson & Johnson, who makes facial scrubs and body washes, and Procter & Gamble, who, among other things, makes Crest toothpaste, which for now still has microbeads in some brands, but not triclosan. (laughs) Well, that makes for some strong arguments for reading the ingredients before you buy. So you said you had three, Peter. What's the third one? Oxybenzone is a common ingredient in some sunscreens. University of Hawaii researchers say it also stresses coral larvae, one more factor in the alarming decline in coral reefs. They say that on the island of Maui alone, enough oxybenzone washes off swimmers to fill a 55-gallon drum every day. So state legislators are considering a ban on sunscreens that use oxybenzone. So no sunscreens at all on the sunny beaches of Hawaii? No, there are alternatives that don't contain oxybenzone, said to be just as effective, that use zinc oxide or titanium oxide as the active ingredient. So uh, what else do you have for us today? There's some hope for an iconic, exotic animal threatened with extinction. Tasmanian devils have been blitzed by an epidemic of infectious cancer that they catch from each other by biting, and that's claimed as much as 80% of their population in recent years. Now, over here, most people know the Tasmanian devil as Taz, the cartoon character. Right, and Taz in the Warner Brothers cartoon is faithful to the real Tasmanian devils, but only to a point. The real ones have outsized heads and a ferocious growl and bite when feeding. But unlike the cartoons, they usually walk on all fours and don't whirl around like a tornado. They're also said to stink to high heaven. So uh, what's the good news for this animal that I'm not sure I want to really meet in person? Researchers have found three separate devil populations whose genomes show an extra resistance to cancer, which shows up in the form of smothering facial tumors. It's hoped that these populations can survive the cancer epidemic and keep the Tasmanian devil alive in the wild and not just in cartoons. That's an interesting development. Hey, what's the anniversary you have for us this week? Well, when we think about ideas that have shaped modern life, there are the obvious ones like electricity and automobiles and the internet and a lot more. But a hundred years ago this month, a grocer named Clarence Saunders had an idea that changed the way the vast majority of us get our food. Up until then, the standard in food shopping was that you'd write down the list, hand it to a clerk, and the clerk would pick out your food for you. But in September 1916, Saunders opened his store with a dignified name of Piggly Wiggly in Memphis, Tennessee. And thus the modern supermarket was born, huh? Right, and this idea lets Saunders run his store with fewer clerks. So today, some would call him a job killer. Perhaps, but it also spawned two more ideas. The shopping cart, and also the bane of all weight-conscious consumers, impulse buying. Not to mention the first step toward today's mega markets, including hundreds of Piggly Wigglies all over the South, where you can get food from nearby farms or from all over the world. Unless, of course, you live in a food desert with no quality food stores. Right, and you can find those in just about any American city, too. Indeed you can. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News at CHN.org and DailyClimate.org. Thanks, Peter. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Steve. And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. That's all, folks. With global warming, mosquitoes and other insects and pests that can carry diseases are making their way into places that used to be too cold for them. And while we think of mosquitoes carrying human diseases, including Zika, West Nile, and dengue fever further north, as commentator Derek Jackson notes, birds are also at risk. 
Combine the most iconic bird of the North Woods with one of the oldest tropical diseases, and what do you have? A New Hampshire common loon dead from avian malaria. It was the first such loon death in the world, confirmed by wildlife biologists at several institutions. Here's how it happened. Campers on a remote site in the Umbagog National Wildlife Refuge, 30 miles from the Canadian border, spotted a floating loon carcass and waved down a patrol boat. A refuge biologist and intern collected the carcass, chilled it, and drove it to the Loon Preservation Committee, which then took it to the University of New Hampshire for analysis, all by the next day. Malaria is difficult to confirm as a cause of death in a decomposed bird, but this carcass was fresh and the researchers found the disease in its brain, liver, heart, and lungs. Malaria kills birds with no evolved resistance quickly, so the researchers were sure the loon was infected by a carrier mosquito at Umbagog. There's other evidence that avian malaria is flying northward with global warming. It has been confirmed among Arctic birds by researchers at San Francisco State University. Loons are among the world's most ancient birds, pictured on Canadian coins, and they've rebounded with conservation efforts, though they remain far below historic levels in New England. They've weathered many human assaults, from mercury and acid rain to lead fishermen's sinkers. This very same umbagog is home to the Northeast's oldest known loon, called Sweat Meadows 1993, for the year and place she was banded. Over the years, she has hatched at least 20 chicks with 11 surviving predation by eagles, gulls, and snapping turtles. Her current mate is 22 years old. These old birds represent a triumph of environmental recovery, yet the loon dead from malaria is as haunting as its eerie wails in the middle of the night. It might just have been an unlucky, solitary bird, but it also may be a sentinel warning us that climate change is eroding the distinction between tropical jungle and boreal forest. That's commentator and bird lover Derek Jackson. We're up in the Northlands with water and the birds that live on it for Bird Note today. And as Michael Stein explains, sometimes birds are not what they seem. On a northern lake surrounded by dense evergreens, a large water bird rests on the surface. Its long, slim body, more than two feet of it, appears mostly white, the back black, the head a deep green, and all of it glistens. The bird dives under a graceful sliding motion, then returns to the surface with a fish grasped firmly in its beak. The bird's shape and behavior spell loom. But this is a male common merganser, a very large duck that hunts fish for a living. The common merganser is one of our biggest ducks, about the size of some loons, or even a small goose. Although it's not closely related to loons, it has evolved a similar overall structure and predatory behavior. But a merganser has a unique feature that a loon lacks, tooth-like serrations along the edge of the bill that help the bird grasp slippery fish. 
Common mergansers nest in the northern states and Canada. So do loons. But loons nest on the ground, while mergansers nest mostly in tree cavities and rock crevices. Cavities big enough to house a hefty three and a half pound female, plus about a dozen jumbo eggs. I'm Michael Stein. And for photos, paddle on over to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, how a smallpox epidemic helped to foment a political and medical revolution in colonial Boston. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from Wonder Capital, an online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar projects across the U.S. More information and account creation at wondercapital.com. That's wonder with a U. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Western medicine can be woefully behind the wisdom of ancient civilizations and tribes, as author Stephen Koss reveals in his book about the smallpox epidemic in Boston back in 1721. He tells how the fight in Boston to tap Asian and African understanding of smallpox inoculation also played a major part in fomenting the American Revolution, launched a combative free press along with the career of Ben Franklin, and also advanced science. Today, with our understanding of infection and hygiene, the idea of squirting pus into an open wound sounds repellent, to say nothing of dangerous. Yet it was this very procedure that saved lives during the severe smallpox outbreak chronicled in The Fever of 1721. This swashbuckling tale of how Bostonians finally accepted inoculation also highlights a pirate-chasing ship and the wisdom of Onesimus, a slave owned by Cotton Mather of Salem Witch Trials infamy. Stephen Koss joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you, Steve. So where did the idea for this book come from? Well, the original idea came from a desk calendar that was essentially a fact-a-day calendar for my wife and kids. And as I thumbed through this calendar, which I noticed the event I ended up writing about, the June of 1721 inoculation experiment in Boston, where a doctor named Boylston conducted what turned out to be the first inoculation experiment in Western medicine. And I saw from that one little calendar page that it had been suggested by Cotton Mather, whom I'd always thought of as the bad guy from Salem. And I had no idea there was any other dimension to him. So that got me going. So we've got a number of things that are coming together here in your story of 1721. Let's talk about smallpox and the medical history here. And um, first question, actually, what is inoculation? That is a very good first question, because a lot of people think inoculation and vaccination are the same thing when they're really not. Inoculation preceded vaccination, and inoculation involved taking smallpox pus from someone who was broken out in the disease and implanting it in an incision made in the arm, usually the arm of someone who had never had the disease. And the whole idea was to give the person who was inoculated a mild, survivable case of the disease, which would then, after they recovered, render them immune to any further infection. 
And uh, remind us today of how deadly smallpox was and why this is such an important turning point. Yeah, absolutely. Smallpox was, uh, until it was finally eradicated, the deadliest disease in the world. When smallpox came to a town like Boston, generally speaking, everyone who hadn't had it and was exposed to it would get it. In terms of those who got it, depending upon the population, it could go anywhere from 30% fatalities to there are cases with some Native American populations that had never experienced it at all, where the fatality rate was approaching 90%. And I gather it's not a fun way to go. No, it was an agonizing way to go. It was in addition to all the things we associate with being sick in terms of fever, in terms of headache, stomach ache, vomiting, you had, of course, these horrendous sores. And the sores could become so thick that they were what would be called confluent smallpox, where they all touched each other and created really a mat of sores on the skin. One of the things you write in your book is that this inoculation process was actually well known to humans over history that had been practiced in Asia and in Africa going way back. Why do you suppose that folks in Asia, parts of Africa, knew about this, but it hadn't been introduced to Europe? I think a lot of it had to do with the age of the culture, the age of the civilization. A lot of things originated in the Far East, and Europe only got them sort of later on. I think the reason it didn't get communicated or didn't become commonplace in Europe and in America after that until it did was simple Western arrogance. So Cotton Mather learns this from Onesimus. What exactly happened there? Tell me the story. Mather, in about 1716, came across what would then be considered a scientific journal article about inoculation being practiced in Constantinople. Not long after that, the way he tells it, he was having a conversation with Onesimus, who worked in his house as a slave. And in the course of that conversation, Mather asked Onesimus about a sort of unusual scar on his arm. And Onesimus proceeded to explain that that was really not a big deal where he came from. When smallpox came to the town, inoculations would be done. And he had been inoculated as a very young boy. Interesting. So 1721, Boston has this horrible encounter with smallpox. What set off this particular epidemic? Well, Boston, it's funny, Boston got smallpox almost like clockwork. About every 12 years, they'd get a new epidemic. In this case, though, it had been almost 20 years since they'd gotten smallpox. When smallpox did return in 1721, there were many, many more people who were vulnerable to it, and it became the worst outbreak that they'd ever had. The way it came into Boston was on board a British warship called the HMS Seahorse. Now, Boston did have provisions for quarantine, and there's an island in Boston Harbor, still there, a beautiful park now called Spectacle Island. Spectacle Island in 1721 was what was called the Pest House, and that was the quarantine station. But the British Navy was not obliged to follow the rules, basically. And so a somewhat arrogant captain came into Boston Harbor, realizing that he had picked up smallpox in Barbados, where a very bad epidemic was, was raging. He came in and, and hid the fact that his ship was infected, and slowly but surely it began to spread in the town. At the same time, of course, there's a lot of tension in Boston with the British occupiers. So the Crown is really being challenged for control of this particular colony. So how does this fever come together with 
the American Revolution, as you postulate in your book? Well, there are several ways. I mean, the most direct connection, I think, is that the smallpox epidemic ended up becoming a leverage point or a, a point of contention between the royal governor, who represented Britain, obviously, and the elected House of Representatives, which had been really flexing its muscle. This had been going on for several years, and their relationship was quite contentious and it was quite dysfunctional. And in fact, one of the reasons smallpox got out of control is that there was so much dysfunction at the political level that they were unable to work together to nip it in the bud, so to speak. And then this guy, Cotton Mather, who has this horrible reputation from the Salem witch trials, starts talking about dealing with this smallpox epidemic with, well, you know, it doesn't sound exactly like the nicest thing to do, to slice your skin and drop in pus from somebody who's got smallpox. Well, no one thought it was a really good idea at first, except Zabdiel Boylston, the one doctor who Mather convinced to try the experiment. And the reason Boylston tried it, by the way, was because he had grown up outside of Boston. His father was a doctor who had traveled a lot through the countryside and had a lot of interaction with Native Americans. So he was predisposed towards listening to ideas that came away from the mainstream. It was so counterintuitive to give somebody a disease to save them from a disease the outrage was was just enormous. Both Boylston and Mather, their lives were threatened. And in fact, at one point, someone did throw a bomb through Cotton Mather's bedroom window. So it was very volatile. And you also write in your book, Stephen, that in this horrific scene emerges the first really free American press. How does this connect with the outbreak of smallpox and the unpopularity of, of the uh, colonial governor? Well, what happened was there was a young man named James Franklin, and that last name will be familiar to you and to everybody else who's listening, because he was the older brother of Benjamin Franklin. Well, in 1721, James Franklin started a newspaper called the New England Current, and that would become the first independent newspaper in America, which meant that he published it without asking permission or trying to please the royal authorities with what he printed. When smallpox came along, he decided, aha, I've got this wedge issue. I've got this controversial thing. I can jump on this by being anti-inoculation, actually. He jumped on the popular side of, of the debate. And then, once having done that, he can turn it to things that he was really interested in, which were politics and social issues and humor. And that's what he did. So what you're telling me is the birth of the free press in America is tied to an entrepreneur who went into business to prey on the fears of the public. In, in essence, I am. <laughs> this newspaper that got started by James Franklin, what was the flavor and tenor of that? And, and what analogies to today might you make about this publication? It was interesting because, as I said, it, it covered a lot of serious ground. Before the New England Current, nobody would ever dare report an election result, believe it or not. The government was the only one who could decide whether people should know who won the election for representative to the House, the Massachusetts House. It was also very racy, and it was also funny. In fact, I think you can draw a straight line from things like The Daily Show or The Colbert Report or The Onion. Benjamin Franklin made his debut as a writer in this newspaper as Silence Do Good, a name which many people might know. And Silence Do Good wrote kind of humorous articles that poked fun at Harvard, that poked fun at prostitution, that poked fun at drinking. 
and mind you, this is in Puritan Boston in 1721. These are not people who are generally known to have had a great sense of humor about anything. And at the same time, in the same town, you have a Ben Franklin working on this newspaper with his older brother. How did that work out? Yeah, I say only half kidding that in 1721, everything Ben Franklin ever really needed to know he learned that year. Because the experience of working with his brother in that town at that period with those challenges really changed the way he thought about politics, about the press and freedom of the press. Obviously, he saw what his brother was doing. He saw Boylston conduct this experiment, which was important for Franklin in two ways. One was it was the first real experiment that Benjamin Franklin, the great experimenter, had ever witnessed firsthand. And it also made Boylston a hero. And Boylston, like Franklin, was a man of uh, humble origins. He didn't have a Harvard College education like most of the other doctors in town. He didn't come from a prominent family or, or a wealthy family. And I think Ben Franklin walked away from this experience realizing the potential of his own life in a lot of different ways. So now that we've told this part of the story, uh, let's bring this together. How does smallpox and the media come to, as you uh, put forward in your book, really, in some respects, start the American Revolution, start that ball rolling? Yeah. Well, there are really two strains there. I think there's the role that smallpox had in exacerbating what was already a really interesting political rebellion by a man named Elisha Cook, who I consider sort of our founding grandfather. He was the guy behind all of the political opposition to Great Britain. When smallpox came along and became sort of a wedge issue for the politicians, what it did was really amp up that fever, that political fever. So that's one way for sure. And Elisha Cook's party, which would become known as the Boston Caucus, actually came to fruition around 1721, started a few years earlier. And from 1721 on to 1776, it was the mechanism and the infrastructure for the American Revolution. Meanwhile, you've got James Franklin and the whole freedom of the press thing. And you've got someone for the first time in American history actually saying that the press ought to have a right to criticize the government. Let's digress from a moment from 1721 to 1776 and smallpox again and the role that Ben Franklin played at that time. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, Ben Franklin, after largely because of this, as we all know, went to Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, he became a huge proponent of inoculation, arguably the number one proponent of inoculation in all of the colonies. And because of that, Philadelphia became the center of inoculation. Jefferson went there to be inoculated. Many people were inoculated there. Benjamin Franklin, because he believed in inoculation, also kind of nurtured a new generation of physicians who were pro-inoculation. And in fact, both of the men who advised George Washington, once he became commander-in-chief of the army, strongly pro-inoculation. And in 1777, George Washington made the really daring decision to have his entire army inoculated. A lot of historians believe that maybe the greatest thing Washington ever did as a general in the revolution was inoculate his army. One of the interesting reflections that I came away from your book with, Stephen, is a sense of deja vu in the uh, current uh, climate discussion, the inability of the policymakers to really deal with it. There are many things about this. and in, in, in fact, really, climate can be seen as a public health issue. How crazy am I to look at that as an analogy here? 
I don't think that's crazy at all. I, you know, I hadn't thought of that, but I see a lot of similarity. You know, I think what we saw in Boston that ties to not only today, but all through history since and, and probably before is a sense of the pull between public health and and money, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, it's interesting. In 1721, Boston was the third busiest seaport in the entire British Empire. So the idea of a smallpox epidemic was fearsome, not only because of the health implications, but also the financial implications. Smallpox comes to Boston. Boston gets embargoed by its trading partners, and the economy goes down the drain. And I think the officials in Boston had an opportunity to act early on in a way that might have minimized the spread of uh, smallpox and ultimately prevented an embargo, which did happen eventually. So the worst expectation of the leaders in Boston relative to an embargo ended up happening. And I sometimes I think that in a lot of cases, including climate change, including some other contagious diseases for that matter, you see that it's not so much that we don't have the knowledge or the technology to stop something. We seem to lack the political will because of issues that have to do with profit. Stephen Koss's book is called The Fever of 1721, The Epidemic That Revolutionized Medicine and American Politics. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Stephen. You're welcome, Steve. Thank you. Next time on Living on Earth, how farming helps veterans deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. Animals don't care about your bad day. They're going to come up and they're like, I want you to pet me. And you're like, okay, but I'm feeling really mad right now. But man, they don't know the amazing stuff that they're doing for our vets who come through. The power of goat and pig therapy for vets. That's next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Jenny Doring, Emmett Fitzgerald, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Ellen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jennifer Marquis, and Yolanda Omari. Special thanks this week to Democracy Now! Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade, Jay Grigo, and Noel Flatt. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And like us, please, on Facebook. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider, Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.